I'm Victoria Doherty, and welcome to the cold. Cold is the way revenge is best served, the way a war was fought, and the way a story should be told. And today we're going to be talking about the way stories are told, not necessarily the way they should be told, but the way they can be told. We're going to be talking about writing what you don't know. Um, a lot of writers, most writers at one point or another, get the advice to write what they know. And that's good advice. I mean, it's very tangible and allows you to practice on something that's familiar, something that you know so well and can observe unfettered. Um, it's not the way I started writing, though. I, I started writing what I knew actually quite a bit later. Um, when I was a kid, I actually I wrote exclusively about what I didn't know, unless I was writing for school, right? Um, these were fantastical stories of superheroes and ghosts and space aliens. I loved writing about space aliens. On the more down-to-earth side, I wrote about these lonely, disaffected people who lived outside of the mainstream. People with strange deformities or frightening delusions who didn't quite know where they fit in out there in the world. So they created their own. In every case, I was writing about myself. I guess that's the conundrum. <laughs> Growing into adulthood, I did start writing a little bit more about what I knew. I mean, sort of in a tangible family lore way, a, 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 a realistic, more nonfiction way. And I, I got to source from this rich catalog of family mythology that had been mostly passed down to me orally at the dinner table and such. And since I came from this pretty dramatic war-torn family background filled with spies and lovers and rebels. That seemed like a good place to start my actual writing career. So I did sit down and start relating what I knew, sort of. At least what I'd heard a lot about and experienced in an in-through-the-outdoor kind of way when I packed up and moved to my parents' home city of Prague right after the Iron Curtain was finally ripped down. From there, I was certainly able to paint a picture and portray a culture. I wrote two full-length historical novels, a collection, a collection of short stories as well, and you know, a bunch of essays chronicling Eastern Europe during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and also writing about you know my perception uh, now in in the 21st century um but those early years the the sort of mid 20th century years was a time when my grandparents and parents were clashing with political and historical forces that i could only dream about to them the word cold conjured so much more than the winter it was a state of mind and heart and war that still gives me the chills and obviously that still feeds my imagination. 
because there was so much to draw on. I mean, I would sometimes find myself fitting nonfiction events, you know, stories that were told to me by my grandmother, for instance, into my very fictionalized accounts of World War II and Cold War Europe. And paradoxically, those are the very stories that some reader or another would inevitably call out as not ringing true or so obviously fictionalized. I remember one such story that is in my first novel, The Bone Church. In it, my protagonist, um, who is a former Olympic hockey player, is struggling to survive in the immediate aftermath of World War II when the Soviets um, had, well, quote, liberated the area around Prague and um, the Soviet commander in the region took this character aside and brought him to um, an, a, an well, I was going to say an abandoned building, but it wasn't abandoned at the time. It had been an abandoned building where they were housing um, soldiers that were not mortally injured. I mean, they they needed perhaps a, to have you know part of an arm amputated or some kind of 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 surgery that would would help them recover. And this was you know after the war. This was the end of the war, and most of these soldiers, they were Russian soldiers. They were his men. They were this Russian commander's men were very young. I mean, they were 13 to 15 years old at that time because all of the older men, or most of them, had been killed. And he said to my character, look at them. They're useless. And he took out uh, his machine gun, and he shot them all, and asked my character to pile them in a corner and that actually happened to my grandfather who also was an Olympic hockey player and was very 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 uh, my character was very loosely based on my grandfather but um, it's interesting because that story has by a couple of readers been called out as 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 highly fictionalized one it was in fact true other parts of my war stories <laughs> most of which are completely made up and never ever, as far as I know, happen to anyone, ironically stay uncontested. I've always found that curious, but I think I get it. One of the shortfalls of writing from our own experience, from our direct experience, um, or our particular group experience, you know, whatever that means, however you would define that, is that we know the story so well, or at least we think we do. And as a result, we might take a lot of what we know for granted. It's easy to miss important themes or snap a fragmented picture when a person or an event is too close so familiar that we've made up our minds about it and stopped learning. Without realizing, we get complacent, smug about our knowledge. We get repetitive. Those new angles, though, you know, so tantalizing, they just slip from our fingers.
I'm certainly vulnerable to this. And that's why I've started <laughs> um, writing a new series that is so way outside of my, my sphere of experience, right? It's not a goodbye to my other genre as much as it is a well-needed break. I was finding myself getting stale and craving something that would wake up and shake up my imagination a bit. An endeavor that's on this side of, of, you know, bonsai and will not only bring me back to the unfettered joy of writing completely from the land of make-believe, but also bring me home to my Cold War, right? With something more to offer. I think it will infuse this desperately needed element of outside perspective into my storytelling. And I have already started feeling that because while, you know, I, I write this, this in this new genre, I'm also storyboarding my third Cold War historical thriller. And it has just juiced me. When I think about it, as a human being, I've learned so much about myself from outsiders. I mean, I can give a short and not even close to finished list of some of those things right off the top of my head. That I'm at least in part of Jewish ancestry, which was pointed out to me long before I learned it was true. But I love like a Catholic. I look good in red but awful in yellow. I'm a conservative. I'm a liberal. Kinder in my actions than my thoughts. Better on paper than in person. An American for sure and a patriot, but one who seems more European than American to Europeans, if that makes sense. I won't bore you with any more of those, but you get the picture. (sighs) Fiction is a radical reframing that helps us grasp perceptions like that about ourselves and about others. In training our creative impulses on wildly divergent people or cultures or worlds, we gain an opportunity to look at things anew with the cold eye necessary for true insight. It's the kind of divination that only dawns on a person who steps over the divide and invites an oddball for coffee, buys a ticket to somewhere for something with someone who raises questions and risks the raised eyebrow, right? The whisper the whisper behind your back, the Twitter troll. That leap into a different story, another struggle, doesn't have to take place across an ocean, nor does it have to be for writers or artists alone. I mean, it can happen in your own backyard, spent among the people next door who you might think you know, who you might be wrong about, or damned right about.
It's an ethos my husband and I are at pains to instill in our children too, so they'll feel comfortable around peasants and kings or artists and actuaries, Republicans and Democrats. We hope it'll embolden them to hesitate before they condescend or place on a pedestal, vilify or otherwise distort their own view of a mere fellow human being. So I think we know full well how easily this intention can fade away as we dig into our habits and get busy and distracted as we grow up. It's this essence I often find myself being drained of when I dip my toe into all the fighting and tribalism that's going on right now. But I hope to get a great big infusion of it while exploring my brave new world and without hardly stepping out of my home office. The world I'm mixing up from scratch for this brave new story. It's one of deserts and ancient civilizations, love and war, you know, all the things I love, lovers, killers, curses, and destinies. And it's a world I can only understand through fantasy and is only possible if I throw out all accepted wisdom. It's a world like this. Dazing in and out of sleep, I awaken for the last time at least an hour before dawn. The storm is over and it's so quiet that I can even hear my brother, who still sleeps with the feathered breath of an infant. I cradle him, laying him softly on his side and kissing his ear before getting up to tiptoe to the mouth of the cave. The moon casts an icy glow over the sand, and there isn't even a breeze left over from the violent winds that lashed us only a few hours ago. The stars twinkle, and I feel the sort of peace that comes after a good, hard cry. On the yield of my own deep breath, I hear a rapping sound, rhythmic, like two sticks striking to a musical beat. I can almost recognize the song. Out in the distance, a shadow splays across the dune. It's the form of a man, slender, his arm stretched out in salon, a gesture that means to be, to endure, always. I bite down on my lip. The man, an archer, steps into the pale of the moon, the skin of his face aglow like a pearl. His beard is black as a raven. Even at a distance, his eyes kindle, lit by some trick of the desert. I step closer to the edge and hold out my hand, and he raises his, though not in Salon this time. He waves his fingers in a gesture of voyaging, the one the god Mazal used when he set his wife, the moon, into orbit around him forever. (laughs) 
That was from book one of Breath, which is available on Amazon if you're interested, as well as its companion novel, Savage Island. And I am currently writing book two of the series called Of Sand and Bone, and boy, it is just kicking my ass, but in the best way. Thank you for listening. And if you are enjoying Cold, and I sure hope that you are, uh, please follow or subscribe. Um, And please, if you can, leave a starred review to let me know what it is that I'm doing right or not. (laughs) So thank you. And until next time, stay cold, my friends. Thank you.